This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Jada Pinkett Smith. One of the revelations in her new memoir is that she and her husband, actor Will Smith, have been separated for seven years. Also, we'll hear from Keegan-Michael Key. Along with Jordan Peele, Key became famous as half of the sketch comedy duo Key and Peele. Peele went on to direct hit films like Get Out, Us, and Nope. Key's career has taken him deeper into acting. He co-starred in a comedy about improv comics and now has a new book called The History of Sketch Comedy. And Maureen Corrigan will review Justin Torres's long-awaited second novel, Blackouts, which has been shortlisted for the National Book Award. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Our co-host, Tanya Mosley, has today's first interview. Here's Tanya to introduce it. Jada Pinkett Smith's new memoir begins at the top of a mountain, suicidal and in search of healing. Yes, as a successful film and television star, Jada Pinkett Smith had experienced success beyond her wildest dreams. But what it took to get there, growing up fast and reckless in Baltimore, Maryland, suppressing past traumas, she never really saw herself living past 40. In her new memoir, Worthy, Pinkett Smith contends with the ways she coped in life, growing up with parents who struggled with drug addiction and the choices she made to survive. She takes us through her career in the inner workings of Hollywood as a young Black actress in the 90s and 2000s, and she shares new details for the first time on what she calls a highly misunderstood narrative about her marriage to famed actor Will Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith is an actor, singer-songwriter, talk show host, and producer. She has appeared in more than 20 movies throughout her career, including Menace to Society, Collateral, The Matrix Reloaded, Revolutions, and Resurrections. Jada Pinkett-Smith, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. So, Jada, um, you've lived a public life for so long. It was really interesting for me to read in the book about your life before Hollywood. (laughs) Because we know so much about what's happened, you know, throughout your career. Um, it also really sets the stage for where you were when you were 40 years old, when you had this crisis, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Baltimore. Your grandparents were a big part of your life. Your parents, Adrian Banfield and Rob Saul mm-hmm. Pinkett, were high school uh, sweethearts and married shortly after your mother got pregnant with you at 17. Your mother has been in recovery for quite a while. We learned about that on Red Table Talk. But um, when you were growing up, you describe her as a full-blown, high-functioning heroin addict who was holding it all together. Mm-hmm. What did that look like? My mother was, at one point, a head nurse at a woman's clinic, okay? And 
was deep in her heroin addiction. And how old were you about that time? Um, 16. Yeah. You know, and you would see my mother and she would be really well put together. I mean, sharp, um, beautiful. Um, you know, you you wouldn't really recognize her level of dysfunction unless you were inside her world. And you were inside her I world. I was inside her world. But on the outside, never know. You, after watching her, said to yourself, what is going to be my hustle? <laughs> oh, <And> yeah. <laughs> you knew, like, you were you were creative. You liked lots of things. You were an actor. You were going to this wonderful school where you were, um, you were acting and auditioning for things. But you also were selling drugs. Mm-hmm. And I want you to paint a picture for us <laughs> um, of how selling drugs would seem like a viable option for you at, at that age. Oh, yeah, because, you know... In our environment, we didn't have doctors, lawyers, you know, professionals, you know, that were in our neighborhoods, right, that were like, that's how you do it. Like that person over there, we had hustlers. So they were the role models. They were the role models because they had the cars, they had wads of cash, they had, you know, protection and security. Um, They were loved. um, All of that. Right. And so for me, I was like, I want that. I want it now. And it was something that you could have instantly. Right. And so, um, you know, in my mind at that time, that's what I believed I needed to have power, safety, Security, love. What were you selling? I was selling crack, crack cocaine. At one point, you felt like, okay, I'm going to be a queen pin. Mm-hmm. You were really deep into it. I was. What did that look like? You were going to school by day, and then what? Yeah, going to school by day, sometimes leaving school in the afternoon and making runs, and then, you know, come back. Like, school for me... I came and go as I as I pleased. That was just, <laughs> you know, I mean, thank goodness that the faculty there really saw my potential. And and my, my high school diploma was literally a gift because they were just like, get out of here. <laughs> get to North Carolina and do something with yourself. Right, because you went on to North Carolina School of the Arts. But did you ever feel conflicted knowing that your parents? Never. Struggled? Yeah. Never, because when you, you, it's, it's, we grew up in a war zone. So here's the deal. Drugs was going to be part of your life. Okay. You could use drugs. You could be a drug dealer's girlfriend. You could sell drugs. There was no not having a relationship to drugs. Right. And so you just figured out, okay, well, what relationship do you want to drugs? Right. And. Of course, when I think back in hindsight, in the mindset, the clarity that I have now, it's just like, what what is that? And I have remorse for a lot of my activity Mm. back then, Mm. you know. But at that time, I was so immersed in a different mindset and in a different kind of environment, you know, that there was this level of survival Mm. for me. You know, and so you survive by any means. You survive by the resources that you think are right there. I mean, it was such a pivotal time period for you, graduating high school, this moment before you went to college, because you were making this choice for yourself. Like, mm-hmm. am I going to be a queen pin? Am I going to sell drugs to continue to make money? Because you were making some good money. You are able to have your own car, do yeah. the kind of things you wanted to do. Um, but you had two near-death experiences that kind of got you out of that mindset well they were definitely the ones i wrote about yes so you had more (laughs) that you didn't write about man those yeah i mean but it was an everyday thing you know it was an everyday thing to almost almost look death in the eye absolutely and it's so hard for people to understand that that's not from that Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people, when they read the book, and they go, you know, how did you, like, weren't you afraid? And, and, and it's very hard to explain, like, 
I know that experience seems extreme when you read it, but in relationship to everything that was going on in that world, that's lightweight. It's not extreme. It's not unusual. It's not like, oh, my God, I can't believe you had two nine millimeters to your head. It's just kind of like, oh, I'm glad you made it out of that, shorty. I'm glad. In so many ways, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, But can you describe a little bit more when you say it was a war zone? You know, I mean, going to clubs, you knew there was going to be a shootout. But we went anyway. Hands down, there was going to be a shootout. You're going to hit the floor. You're going to be running. Somebody is pulling out a gun. And you know that. That's entertainment. Hmm. And you're like, it's cool. You're like, you're just ready because you're not going to miss the party. You're going. What do you think that is? That's, 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 you just develop a certain mindset that is programmed to accept and to accept what you have. And also that you just might die because you don't expect to live. You don't expect to live. So it's like you're going to sit in a house. It's like that's part of it. I have friends that were, listen, funerals. We were going to funerals like barbecues. We were going to funerals like barbecues. And I mean, young people my age, I was just... that's just what it was. I mean, I can't even tell you the, the amount of friends that I've lost, you know. I've had so much loss in my life. Some losses were more extreme than others, you know. But when you got that late night page, you already knew, you know. If, you, if your phone was ringing late at night, you already knew. If somebody had died. Somebody, right? And so... You know, that that was just, and I wish that we talked more often about, and I think we are now, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to the violence that happens with men. But when I was coming up, so many women, you know, that were, um, found their demise at the hands of violence, mm. you know, that we don't, I still think we don't talk about it enough, mm. you know. It's part of why you hit a wall at 40. Yeah, and probably why I also had that breakdown at twenty twenty one because I wasn't allowing myself to deal with any of it. You know, I didn't I didn't allow myself to deal with the level of loss, trauma, all of it. We're listening to Tanya's conversation with Jada Pinkett Smith. She's written a new memoir called Worthy, which chronicles her life growing up in Baltimore, her career in Hollywood, raising children and her marriage to actor Will Smith. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat Oat Milk, or visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Let's get back to Tanya's interview with Jada Pinkett-Smith. Her new memoir, Worthy, takes the reader through her life growing up in Baltimore and her career as an actor, singer-songwriter, talk show host, and producer, as well as her marriage to actor Will Smith. You seem to have this way of, of knowing what works for you. I just, I think I laughed out loud when I saw that you turned down being the best friend for the hit sitcom <laughs> Blossom. Yeah. You were going to be, they offered you that role. What yes. made you know that something else was better for you? You turned it down. Instinct. Not having anything else. Instinct. That's part of where that that street confidence, right? It was like you, your instinct. At that time, my instincts were so dialed in any environment I went into, the first thing I would do is dial in my instincts, right? And so I just knew. And I just knew, uh, first and foremost, I was like, I'm not, I, I can't play a 12 year old. Like, I. Because uh, how old were you at the time? I was 19. <laughs> I yeah. And I was a wild 19, you know what I mean? And I was like, I can't play 12. And I remember my agent at the time, Nancy Rainford, she was like, oh, Jada opportunities like this don't come by all the time, you know? And I just knew, I was like, Nancy, ooh, just ride with me, ride with me on this. And she did. She did. She trusted me. And then within two weeks, different world. A different world. Yeah. Which was a spinoff from uh, the Cosby show. You went to audition for a role that was a temporary role on the show. It was Mm -hmm. just kind of a role that was a walk-on on the show. But you met... Um, Debbie Allen. Yeah. She wrote she wrote a character based on your life. She did. Lena James. And she was like, I went and auditioned for a college student that had contracted HIV and it was a starring role for for one episode. And she, you know, after I did my audition, she said, Tell me, tell me about you. Where are you from? Tell me about your life. So, you know, we got into this conversation. She was asking me questions. And, you know, and I was like, and I'm going to be the next Debbie Allen. Like, I went to Baltimore School. You're in front of Debbie Allen. I'm going to be the next next you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she cracked up. And so, you know, when it was all said and done, she said, I'm not going to give you this role. She said, but I'm going to bring you on this show as a series regular. That was your big break. That was my big break. Yeah. You also write, though, I mean, and you touched on this, but the way that you were treated in Hollywood during those early days, you describe it as being kissed on one cheek and then backhanded on the other. Mm -hmm. What did that what did that look like? You know, it was. Blackness was celebrated on screen. But blackness was not celebrated off screen. Right. And so that was one part. And then the other was, you know, I was really rough around. (laughs) I was really rough around the edges, you know. And so there was always something wrong with Jada. Mm. Like what? Like Like you need to She's too hairy. She's too, you're, you know, she, I always, I would always have to audition. You're too hairy. I was too hairy. Yeah, I was too hairy. Because, no, you have to, you have to, we have to talk about this on NPR. I just have to, (laughs) because being hairy in the black community. That's sexy. Right. Yeah. So you came from Baltimore right. thinking like I'm I have I, hair. I'm hairy. I got you know I had a little hair on top of my lip. My legs are hairy, you know, my arms are hairy. You know, I'm having some black actors are like, never shave your legs. Make sure you never <laughs> shave your legs. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, you have the Hollywood community is like, Oh, she's so hairy. You know, <laughs> wax her immediately, like so <laughs> You know, so I was like, oh, okay, you know, and then it was my hair, it was my attitude, it was the way I talked. I, it's just one thing after another, right? And so I just had to figure out how to play the game in a way that wasn't going to steal who I wanted to be. Jada, one of the most enduring stories about you is that you and the late rapper Tupac Shakur were not just childhood friends. You were thick as thieves. Yeah, we were. I don't think I really even understood the depth of your friendship until reading 
this book. He was one of your best friends, and the two of you met during orientation sophomore year at the Baltimore School for the Arts. Yeah. Can you describe that first meeting? He was holding court, like, he was holding court in the upper left side of the theater that we all assembled in. And I remember coming in, you know, I'm coming in fashionably late. Jada's fly. She got, you know, she's, I'm here. Jada's here. And he's holding court and he looks over and I look to him and I'm like, oh, who's that peanut head dude over there? <laughs> <laughs> and we catch eyes and I'm like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I'm, I'm this social butterfly, so I'm going to talk to my people. And then he comes over and he goes, hi, I'm Tupac yeah. and holds out his hand. And I shake his hand, and that was the first time. I was like, oh, man, his hands are so clammy. And <laughs> I used because I would tease him about those hands of his, right? And, um, and we were inseparable from there. It was as if we had known each other, as, as if we knew each other. It was crazy. It was just like. Instant. Instant. It was instant. Little known fact, he wanted to make a rap, female rap group and have you in it. <laughs> Yes. He he succeeded. He made a he had me part of the female rap battle group. And I did one rap battle because I couldn't rap at all. Okay, And I did one rap battle. We won. And I was like, that's it. I'm not going to because he was so was it freestyle or was it? No. no, What was it? He wrote me. He He wrote wrote it. Yeah. He wrote me a rhyme. And I found when I was going through, when I was writing the book, I had to go through, like, all of my letters and what have you. And I still have letters from him, like, from high school. And so I found a rap that he had written for me during that time. And it was awful. <laughs> it was an awful rap. It was terrible. I was like, what? But um, he probably had to really simplify it because I just couldn't rap. So, You know, I mean, by today's standards, when we hear... Uh, letters, we think, wow, that, I mean, that you only write letters if it's romantic. But back in the day, yeah. that's how we communicated. That's right? right. We didn't have texts and emails. We had letters. Right. Yeah. Your relationship with Tupac wasn't romantic. No. Yeah. That's something that is, I mean, I think when people hear a guy and a girl yeah. so connected in the way that you guys are or were, um, how would you describe it then? You know, I think some relationships you just can't really give a title to. That's what I'm starting to realize. You know what I mean? It's like because it encompasses so much. You know what I mean? It's like he was like a father to me at times. Sometimes he was like a brother, a big brother. Sometimes he was like a little brother. Sometimes he was like a platonic boyfriend. Sometimes he was like, you know— my nemesis, you know, and um, he was so many things to me. When he wrote the song "Dear Mama," which is still is it's still an anthem mm-hmm. for imperfect mothers. We're all of us are imperfect mothers, absolutely. Really. But um, he sent it to you to listen to. Yeah. And what did you think about it when you first heard it? I loved it. I loved it. He had so he had he was a little concerned. Yeah. And not about concerned what? like yeah. oh, but like like what you think cuz at first he was like I wrote this about our moms, you know. And of course it was about his mom, his mom but and your mom. The yeah. idea that a mother who's addicted to you know substances, substances and he was he didn't know if he wanted to bring that journey to the to to um to his music and and i just thought i i just thought it was so beautiful it was so honest but yet it was like this beautiful acceptance you know of just of it of, of it imperfection yes. and love a mother's love yes and i, I was just like wow I was like, Pac, I said, I think I think your mom is going to love this, and I think this is the best song you've written so far. You know, it's just like, I, was, I just fell in love with it. Do you still feel that when you hear it today? 
I do. I rem- Every time I hear Dear Mama, I remember him calling me. And I, and I visualized the cassette tape. Because <laughs> it was on tape. Yeah, yeah, it was on tape. I visualized the cassette tape. The last time you all saw each other, you had a fight. It was yeah. an argument. Mm-hmm. You, you all never spoke again because a year later he was murdered. Mm-hmm. It's one of your biggest regrets. I don't know if I would call it a regret. It's definitely a big lesson. Right, because everything I'm, I'm always I don't really have regrets. I can have remorse. Situations can give me big lessons. That was a big one, you know. Um, what was the lesson? You know, just a lesson around pride and think taking taking time for granted and thinking. You know, I really thought Pac was invincible at that time. He had been through so much, right. Yeah. And he had survived so much already. Things that people know, things that people don't know. But he had survived so much. And I never thought in a million years that we would have that argument and that he would be shot and actually die. Mm -hmm. You know, so I really learned not to allow my pride to keep me from communication and reconciliation, right? And so even now, as, as morbid as it might seem, like if I'm in a deep conflict, the first place I go to, if I'm in a deep conflict with somebody, I go, if you were in your deathbed or if this person was on their deathbed, would this moment matter? And most of the time is no. <laughs> Unless I got some real strong pride. <laughs> you know what I mean? But most of the time it's no, and that rectifies it right there. Yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith, thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you for your book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Jada Pinkett Smith's new memoir is titled Worthy. She spoke with Fresh Air's co-host, Tanya Mosley. Justin Torres has a long-awaited second novel, Blackouts, that's been shortlisted for the National Book Award. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, says Torres clearly took the time he needed to write something rich and strange. Here's her review. Blame the Halloween season, but Justin Torres's Blackouts strikes me as a traditional novel wearing the costume of experimental fiction. I say that because even though Blackouts is festooned in dizzying layers of tales within tales, photographs, film scripts, scholarly-sounding endnotes, and fictionalized accounts of real-life figures, at its core is a classic conceit, one that's been dramatized by the likes of Tolstoy, Willa Cather, Marilyn Robinson, and many others. I'm talking about the deathbed scene. Here, that scene consists of a conversation between two friends about the distortions and erasures of queer history. Over a decade has passed since Torres made his mark with his semi-autobiographical debut novel called We the Animals, which was hailed as an instant queer classic and made into a film. Blackouts justifies the wait. The novel opens with the arrival of a 27-year-old man at an eerie, ornate ruin of a building called the Palace, located somewhere in the desert. He's seeking an older man known as Juan Gay. Some ten years ago, the two men met when they were institutionalized for their sexuality. Now Juan is very sick and he asks his younger friend, whom he affectionately calls in Spanish, Nene, to promise to remain in the palace and finish the project that had once consumed him, the story of a certain woman who shared his last name, Miss Jan Gay. Jan Gay, it turns out, was the actual pseudonym of Helen Reitman, a real-life queer writer and sex researcher. She was also the daughter of Ben Reitman, known as the Hobo Doctor, 
who ministered to the poor and who was a lover of the anarchist Emma Goldman. You see how Juan's stories begin to spiral out, touching history both imagined and true. Nene is oblivious to most of this history, so it's Juan's mission before he dies to enlighten his young friend, and by extension, those of us readers who also need enlightening. Here's how Nene remembers his earliest realization that he had a lot to learn back when he first met Juan and was struck by his quiet self-possession. I was a teenager from nowhere. I saw only that Juan transcended what I thought I knew about sissies. When he spoke, he spoke in allusion. I don't think he expected me to understand directly, but rather wanted me to understand how little I knew about myself, that I was missing out on something grand, a subversive variant culture, an inheritance. Nene's ignorance about that inheritance is not all his own fault, of course. That history was censored, obliterated. That's where Juan's project comes in. He owns a copy of a book, an actual book, called Sex Variants, A Study of Homosexual Patterns, that was published in 1941. The book was built on Jan Gay's original research into queer lives and the oral histories that she collected. But that research was twisted by so-called medical professionals who co-opted her work and were intent on categorizing homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder and a crime. Torres's title, Blackouts, refers to the blacking out of pages of Jan Gay's interviews with her queer subjects, pages that are recreated here. Juan and Nene's extended deathbed conversation about sex, family ostracism, Puerto Rican identity, and films they love, like Kiss of the Spider Woman, an inspiration for this novel, is a way of imaginatively restoring some of that forbidden material. Blackouts is the kind of artfully duplicitous novel which makes a reader grateful for Wikipedia, Although Torres supplies what he coyly terms blinkered endnotes to this novel, I found myself checking the sources of almost everything, including illustrations from mid-20th century children's books that Jan Gay wrote with her real-life, longtime partner, Jaina Gay. The book banners will flip out when they learn of this actual couple whose children's books may still be lurking on library shelves. But at the still center of this spectacular whirl of talk and play remain the remarkable figures summoned from history and Torres's imagination, whose lives were animated by their outlawed desires. Torres articulates a blinding blizzard of hurt in these pages, yet Nene and Juan give us, and themselves, much joy too. A kiss to build a dream on. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Blackouts by Justin Torres. Coming up, we'll hear from sketch comic and actor Keegan-Michael Key. He has a new book called The History of Sketch Comedy. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. 
When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Our next guest, Keegan-Michael Key, loves sketch comedy, watching it, performing it, and now writing about it. With Jordan Peele, he was half of the sketch comedy duo Key and Peele, which was also the name of their show on Comedy Central. When the series ended, Key and Peele split up as a duo. Peele went on to direct the films Get Out, Us, and Nope. Key went on to act in films, including a comedy about improv and sketch comedy called Don't Think Twice. He co-stars in the TV series Schmigadoon, a great show that lovingly satirizes Broadway musicals. He made his Broadway debut in a show written by Steve Martin called Meteor Shower and played Horatio in the New York Public Theater production of Hamlet, which starred Oscar Isaac as Hamlet. Now, Key has returned to sketch comedy by writing about it. He hosted the podcast The History of Sketch Comedy, which he wrote with his wife, L. Key, and they've adapted that into the new book, The History of Sketch Comedy. Keegan-Michael Key, welcome back to Fresh Air. I think the last time we spoke was when Key and Peele ended the series on Comedy Central. That's right. So that would have been 2015 or so. Yeah. So that was a while ago. It was a while ago. It's good to be back. It's great to have you back. Let me start with kind of where we left off. When we spoke, Key and Peele, the TV series, was ending. Um, I think we spoke right before the last episode. Um, oh. So what happened? Like, did you and, and, and Jordan Peele decide to end the series, or was it ended by Comedy Central? No, we, we decided to end the series. We wanted to get really British about the whole thing, if you know what I mean. You know I don't in, know what in, you mean. <laughs> well, yeah, in, the, <laughs> in the UK, um, very often when they do series or, or uh, of television shows, what they do is they only do them for three years or four years or five years, and then they stop the series. They just, they just, there's always a kind of, um, uh, with me and Jordan, there was a natural ending. It just felt like we wanted to move on to other things. And we were like, yeah, we could probably continue to do this for six years or seven years or maybe even eight years. But we both felt very strongly that there were other things that we wanted to do. And, and so we decided to move on. But you were still on good terms with each other? Oh, yes. We were on great terms with each other. It was it was a mutual decision for us, and um, and we knew that we would work together again sometime soon. We just didn't know what the project would be. And Jordan was immersed in Get Out at the time. He was really... Oh, ready. so he was already working on that. Yeah, he had been working on it for about eight years. He, he had had different uh, amalgamations of the script in his mind, and he kept on rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And he had been doing all of that, um, actually starting during the Mad TV times, uh, all the way into Key and Peele. And so he was raring to go when we had finished the show. One of the other avenues that you moved on to was playing Horatio in Hamlet. Um, is that something that you'd always been yearning to do? It's funny that you ask that because it is. It's something I, I have wanted to play Horatio for over 20 years. Wait, wait. I'm going to stop you. Most people want to play Hamlet, not Horatio. <laughs> yes, I know. That's funny. I, it's, it's, it's interesting that I wanted to I wanted to play Horatio. Ever since I saw um, there was an actor by the name of Nicholas Farrell who played Horatio in the Kenneth Branagh film Hamlet, that very expansive, exhaustive film where I, I don't know... I, I, <laughs> I don't know if Kenneth Branagh cut a single line from that version of Hamlet because that was like a, a four-hour movie that I enjoyed every moment of. And um, I remember seeing his performance as Horatio, and I really, really, really wanted to be uh, in that role. I, I loved that part. I loved playing the best friend or having an opportunity to play the best friend, and I, I couldn't have asked for a better partner than Oscar Isaac when we did it at the uh, the public. It was it was magnificent. So one of the reasons to play Horatio is like, he's the guy who survives at the end. Yeah, like, he, gets, he lives. Dead. You're right. Everybody, <laughs> it's but, pretty much Fortinbras and Horatio, and then everybody else is gone. Yeah. So, uh, spoiler. <laughs> spoiler alert. I get to make it to the end. The black guy makes it to the end, Terry. <laughs> the black guy makes it to the end. So, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so setting was, a new precedent. Setting a brand new precedent, both theatrically and cinematically. Yes. <laughs> So one of the things you have to do playing Horatio is to kind of figure out what to do while Hamlet's doing soliloquies. So, like, you're on stage. People are seeing you. 
but no one's really paying attention to you, but someone's going to be looking, like you're still in the visual frame on stage. Especially in the theater that we did it in, too. We did it in a small, small theater that had about 300 seats, and it was really, I mean, you're on top of the audience. In fact, sometimes I was on top of the audience. There, there, was, a, there was a moment in the play where I actually sit on somebody's lap and um, and converse with them for a couple of seconds before I go on stage. So, yeah, you're right. You have to stay... Well, for me, it was easy because Oscar Isaac was such a a fantastic Hamlet and a role that that Oscar had been preparing for for about twelve years. He and uh, Sam Gold, our director, they both they both went to Juilliard together, and they were working. They had been working on this for such a long time, thinking about one day we're going to do a production of Hamlet somewhere. And um, every night, uh, I got. I got like it felt like I had a front row seat to watch these wonderful, you know, some of the most f- famous soliloquies in the history of of English speaking language. And so for me, it was really uh, a challenge, a fun challenge to be able to sit there and, and, and concentrate on those words and the way that Shakespeare constructed the words. And it was oh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But what about when you had to be on stage during a soliloquy? Like, what what did you do with your body and your face? Well, what I would what I would typically do was I w- would focus all of my attention, especially if I, if I was sitting in the audience, I would focus my attention as much as possible on Oscar and actually lean my body forward, so that if the audience member sitting next to me got weird or starstruck or anything, and they're turning and looking at me, they see that I'm looking at the stage. They see that I'm also being an audience member and trying to be a good audience member um, so that I have the opportunity to to kind of coach them in a way is that, okay, make sure that you're paying attention to what I'm paying attention to. And as opposed to them, you know, looking at their wife and just going, look, 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 look the, the, the actor, he's right here. He's right here. Look at this guy. You're modeling behavior for I'm them. modeling behavior. Well said. Well said. When you were young, when you were 14 or 15, you used to listen to cassettes in the car of Saturday Night Live, and I, I assume you memorized some of the sketches and, and kind of studied them. Did you dream of being on that show? Like once you knew that you were going to be part of sketch comedy and improv comedy, was that ever your ambition? It was um, It was definitely my ambition. In fact, before I knew I was going to be part of sketch comedy, before I – because when I was in high school – there, there were no avenues uh, for sketch comedy in Detroit. We didn't. It wasn't like if you were 14 years old and you were growing up in Chicago. There were places that you could go. You could go to the training center at the Second City and take classes. And there is a culture there that is uh, that is already established. Whereas in Detroit, we didn't have that. All I had was the cassettes that I had of the, you know, the best of Saturday Night Live or watching Saturday Night Live late night with my father uh, when he would let me stay up uh, before church on Sunday, <laughs> which was sometimes nice of him to do. And um, uh, so I, I thought once I saw Eddie Murphy, I just was done. I was like, that's it. I want, I, I want in. I don't know what this is or how you do it. And my parents, being social workers, they really didn't have any knowledge to share with me about the industry. But I knew that there was some way I had to get in. I, I wanted to do what Eddie Murphy was doing at the time uh, more than anything. I enjoyed listening to his stand-up, um, which, you know, his stand-up was replete with profanity. So my parents were not, you know, terribly thrilled about it. But when we watched him on SNL, he was a dynamo. I, I, I just wanted, I wanted, it, whatever, I would just look at him and just go, whatever that guy's doing, I want, I want in. I want to be able to figure out how to be part of that world. I'm wondering how the new awareness in Hollywood of inclusion and diversity is affecting you as a light-skinned biracial actor who can maybe like fit in either role, but, you know, I I don't know how that's affecting you. So far, it hasn't, I haven't really bumped into anything um, that's been untoward or has been really a challenge. Um, I do look back at sketches from Key and Peele, and I think to myself, oh, would I be allowed to play that role anymore? What what kind of role? Well, there there was a sketch. Uh, the one that comes to mind right now is there was a sketch where I played a um, an Indian doctor, 
And as, as in from the country India? As in from the country India, right. And so I wonder now if they would say, if you were going to be in that, if it were going to do that sketch, you would hire an Indian actor to play the role. And then I just wouldn't have been in the sketch. It just would have been me and, or just would have been Jordan and this Indian actor. Or anytime Jordan and I would play um, Cholo characters, uh, Hispanic, you know, Los Angeles characters, we wouldn't, it seems that we wouldn't be in our own sketches because we would just be, we would be hiring which I guess you could still you could still call the show Key and Peel. We would just be known more um, as writers <laughs> than performers. And, but performing performing was was so much fun. Being able to perform those characters was so much fun. So, what, what's your take on that? Uh, I think that uh, I think that the inclusion is important. Um, I'm, I'm I'm literally here trying to trying to actually fix the show. <laughs> in my mind, I'm going, how would we do our show now? And would we just simply not be in as much uh, in as as many sketches? I want people to uh, have the opportunity to play those roles. I mean, it's it's been such a long time that everybody else has co-opted those roles that it would be nice now that we'd have an opportunity for people to play to play their own race. I I, I really am in support of it. You might not have had the money to hire them. That's true. We might not have had them. <laughs> I mean, it's a sketch comedy show built around two actors who do characters. Um, so I think I think you know it's kind of tricky because you're, you're. I mean, you're satirizing everybody that you see. Right. Right. And that, and and that and that is actually kind of one of the traditions of sketches that is that you have a you have a, a small troupe or in this particular case a couple. And they do everything. That that that's part of the razzmatazz of the show, is that you can is that that they're capable of doing everything. There there's a kind of a virtuosity to it. So in talking about the history of sketch comedy, the subject of your new book, um, I'm thinking of the fact that your wife Elle co-wrote it with you. A through line through the history of comedy that I think is over is wife jokes, as in, take my wife, please. But so many jokes about, you know, wives and mother-in-laws that were always, like, really offensive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And not everybody thought of it that way at the time because that's what comedy was. But now it's just like you hear those jokes and just cringe. Um, So how did you want to deal with wife jokes in the book? And I'm also wondering if you... And your wife had long talks about wife jokes. It's interesting. We've not we've not um, talked about wife jokes that much. It's interesting. It, it's also interesting that um, that L she comes from a tradition. She comes from a, a Jewish family where they would tell what we like to call hard jokes. Which you know, a, a hard joke, Terry, is where. You have a real definitive setup and a real definitive punchline. Just a, a real, you know, you know, set them up, knock them down kind of jokes. And uh, Elle is very good at that. She has an encyclopedic memory for these kinds of jokes. And um, we never, we never really explored wife jokes a lot. I feel like it's interesting. You're right. They are cringeworthy now. It's so, it's so interesting that generationally speaking. We, we seem to find things that are uh, – I don't know why we, we thought wife jokes were funny in the first place. Um, I, I wonder if it's just that men were trying as hard as they could to keep women under their thumb and so we would make jokes about women nagging and, and – um, but, they're, but, they're, but they're not funny. They're not really funny. We didn't have long discussions about it. Um, the thing that, that we spent more time talking about was L was kind of – kind of cracking open open my head and looking inside and saying, oh, I can take this piece out and I can take this anecdote and this story and use them as the the thread through the book. So what she did is she took um, uh, kind of the memoir part of the book, which is which are stories about my life, and she wove them together with the the history of comedy in general and also comedy sketch comedy in specific. And I think I just found out that Elle is actually your partner and not your wife. So I can't really ask you about partner jokes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> those well, partner L, jokes L, are so condescending. <laughs> those, right, right. 
<laughs> um, L is my wife, but she, um, uh, it's funny. She is. She is my wife. She is my wife. That, but we actually. Um, but you're partners on the book. We're partners on the book. Yes, we're partners okay. on the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the clarification. Yes, you're absolutely uh, welcome. Our relationship started as partners, as uh, working partners. We started. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Our relationship started um, uh, wanting to figure out how to work together. And um, one of our first meetings that we ever had was we had a dinner and we were trying to figure out how we would work together. And Elle was telling me all of these jokes. And I had never heard of these jokes before. And at one point in time, she was like, are you kidding me? You're telling me you've never heard any of these jokes. And I said, listen, I'm just a little Catholic black boy from Detroit. I do not know these Borscht Belt jokes. <laughs> and so, so bring them on. Come on. T- tell me as many as you can. So um, you and Elle did a lot of research into the history of comedy going, like, way back. Um, what's something that you found especially uh, interesting or, or funny that you didn't know about before? One thing I didn't know was that, as far as we knew from our research, the first recorded joke ever um, was in 1900 B.C. So I wouldn't have thought it would have been that far back. It was by the Sumerians. When you say recorded, obviously you don't mean. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I don't mean on on, you, you on mean tape. On yes. tape or right. C- or, right. Or, yeah. I mean or re- recorded on a stone digital. tablet. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Stone tablet. All right. And in the joke, if you if you look in the book, the joke is, you know, we're talking about uh, Sumerians who are people who, you know, came up with algebra and I think they invented the wheel, <laughs> and this first joke that was recorded uh, from our research is actually a fart joke. What was the joke? Uh, the, the, the joke goes something like, um, since time immemorial, there has never been a young lady who did not fart in her husband's lap. That's the joke. So that goes right back to the beginning of what we were talking about, right? Wife jokes. Oh, interesting you'd point that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, what was the Sumerian word for fart? <laughs> yeah, it's a good word. <laughs> Who Somebody translated should do that research. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering who translated this. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I can't ask you what you're up to next because you're an actor, you're a member of the Screen Actors Guild and are on strike and shouldn't be talking about that. You have been able to talk about what you've done on stage because stage actors are not part of the Screen Actors Guild. Whatever you're up to next that we can't talk about, I wish you great success with it, and I hope it's fulfilling and fun. Thank you very much, Terry. I appreciate that. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been great talking with you. Um, I really enjoyed it. Keegan-Michael Key's new book is called The History of Sketch Comedy. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR.